All right, now we are in Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we're going to be looking in this section at chapters 9 and, and 10. So 9.1 through 10.25, we're going to see that Jesus offers a greater sacrifice himself uh, to cleanse a greater tabernacle, which is, which is heaven. Um, yeah, chapters 9 and 10 are rich and dense, and we will do our best to, to press through here in a, in a clear manner. Um, we're going to see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, where it's going to begin is he's going to describe the place and the practice of Old Testament worship, specifically around the, the Day of, of Atonement. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the place where worship happened under the Old Covenant, and then nine, uh, 6 through 10, the practice, how worship happened uh, under the, the Old Covenant. Um, the Day of Atonement is going to be in uh, front and center, if you will. The Day of Atonement was one day a year where a high priest would um, take blood into the Holy of Holies. He was permitted to go into the, to the Holy of Holies once a year. He, of course, had to be ritually cleansed. He had to bring the proper offering. And what he would do is he would go into, into the veil. Uh, you remember they, um, you had to set off some... Uh, some uh, uh, incense in there beforehand. Uh, part of the reason is to, to cloud the room so that he couldn't see the glory of God because if he saw it, he would die. Um, and then what he was to do is he was to go over and he was to take this blood and he was to put it on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, so in, in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, a box, right? And in the box, you have Aaron's rod, you have some manna, and you have the, the tablets of the law that was given to Moses. Well, the, the second round, because he broke the first one, but the second one um, were in there. And on top of this, the, the lid of the, the Ark of the Covenant was called the, the mercy seat, where you would have two cherubim who were facing one another with wings out like you'd see in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. So they're not looking up at God, but they're, they are here um, over the, this, this law, the manna, and the, uh, the rod. Now, the reason that this blood had to be brought in and sprinkled on the mercy seat, God looking down from heaven, as it were, looks down through the, through into the covenant, or into the, the Ark of the Covenant, and what he sees is he sees the law. And then he sees his people, and his people have broken this law. So if God's fair with them, he annihilates everyone, just as you he asked about last time. This is, if God was fair, that's what he would do. But because he's merciful, and he loves to extend mercy, he is just, but he's also merciful. He's provided an opportunity, or a way, if you will, for the priest to come in, and the priest takes the blood and smears it on the mercy seat. So that now when God looks down, rather than seeing the broken law, he sees shed blood. It's atoned for. Atoned means to cover. The broken law is covered by death which is what the wages of sin requires. It's an act of mercy of God teaching the people you need blood to cover your, your law breaking. And God's gonna provide it as a picture, a shadow uh, for the people preparing them for a greater priest who's one day gonna come and shed his blood and tear down that veil and then usher us into the, the holy of holy of heaven. Which by the way, in the book of Revelation, the Ark of the Covenant shows up in heaven. 
It's, it's the picture that God's presence is now there. It's not in the tabernacle uh, anymore, in the temple anymore, but rather it's in heaven and we are to, to go there, which is where this heavenly calling uh, comes from. So let's, uh, let's look here, verses uh, 1 through, through 5, first at the place where worship happened. Now even the first covenant had re- regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared... Uh, the first section in which, uh, where the, in which were the, the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. So that's where the, they'd be ministering regularly. And then verse 3, behind the second curtain, there was a section called the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. Having the gold, golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides, in which was a, a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff at, that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot not speak in detail. Meaning, go back and read Leviticus if you want to learn more. Uh, Exodus and Leviticus. Um, now, so that is the, the place. That's where worship happened. That's the setup that we just described a second ago. Now this was the practice, how worship happened. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes... And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Meaning, as long as we still have this, um, this setup of worship with the tabernacle, nobody's getting into what it ultimately is a picture, which is heaven. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's summarizing here for us is this is everything you've read in Exodus and Leviticus. And what you've got to know is that direct access to God is not available under the old system. So the old system must be reformed, all right? And if you notice here, there's five limitations to old covenant worship. First, the high priest ministers in a temporary place of worship. So he's in a temporary place. Secondly, the high high priest brings animal blood as an offering. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Thirdly, only the high priest can enter God's presence once a year. So not everybody gets to go in there. There's no tours in there. There's only one guy who gets to go in, and that's only once a year. The fourth thing is that the, the, the blood sacrifice is only effective for one year. So there's an expiration date on that accepted sacrifice. You've got to do it year after year after year after year. And then fifthly and finally, the high priest presents offerings, um, I'm sorry, the, the sacrifices that were made uh, only make people ceremonially clean. Notice here he says it doesn't deal with the conscience. It doesn't actually make your conscience clean to where you know you have a right standing with God, but rather it actually pricks your conscience and it just makes you ceremonially clean, which is a picture picture externally of what God desires to do internally. So these are all limitations to this old covenant worship. It can't perfect the conscience. Sins are not removed. Guilt is not appeased. It's simply a reminder of their sins, which we're going to see in chapter 10. So the Old Testament system of worship is intended to create a longing for a fulfillment. 
It's intended to point to a day of reformation and ultimate salvation where somebody's going to come and fulfill all of the shadows and all of the pictures of the tabernacle and the sacrifice and the high priest and all of that. That's just a placeholder until one's going to come who's better. His name's Jesus. This is why we need a new priest to mediate a new covenant, offering up a new sacrifice to give us a new birth. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there's no grace in the Old Testament. Uh, The grace of God is seen everywhere. The fact that he would even give the law to teach them who he is, that he would give the sacrificial system as a means of atonement so that he could pass over sins formerly committed until they fall upon Christ. The the high priest, he would give an intercessor, somebody to go between uh, people and and God. The shadows, those are all, again, grace, and it's it's being saved on credit, looking forward to the one who would come and, and fulfill it. Well, Jesus appears in verses 11 down through 28 to reform the old covenant worship. This is why Jesus comes. He comes to say, thanks, guys. I'm going to fulfill that, and now we're going to go on to a new way of worshiping. What we're going to see here is that what stays the same is that worship occurs only through a high priest and that worship is possible only through sacrificial blood. Those two things are going to stay in place. All right, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest and the good things that have come, now when is he talking about there? What's this appearing of Christ that he's talking about? It's his first coming, okay? We're gonna see his second coming down in in verse 28. Um, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So he's, he's showing here the, the differences between what Christ did at his first coming and what he did at his second coming. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What he's showing for us here is that Jesus purchased and purified us to serve God. And in this verse 11 and 12, what he's just shown is that he, he indeed purchased us. This is what he came to, to do, to shed his blood. And then in 13 and 14, he's come to purify Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So under the old covenant, you had these, all of these ritual sacrifices that people would be sprinkled with blood and it would ceremonially clean, cleanse them. He says those are all shadows and pictures and if the blood of bulls and goats can, can, can make you ceremonially clean, how much better is the blood of Christ that's shed that then is applied to you that now you are covered in his blood and now you are free? How much more will the blood of Christ Notice here, he's offered through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit enabled uh, Christ. So you see the working of the the Trinity here even. Um, He offers himself without blemish to God. So you see Father, Son, and Spirit here um, working together for our redemption, 
for the purpose of purifying our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here working together in the offering of Christ on behalf of his people to call us in to know him and love him and to, to worship him. Now in verses 15 down through 22, we're going to see that Jesus mediates the promised new covenant inheritance. And what we're going to see is that, that a death must occur for the heirs to receive the inheritance. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we, we want to receive the inheritance of this new covenant. Well, a death must first occur. And this is what he's going to explain in verse 16. For where a will is involved, the, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Meaning that if you're going to receive the inheritance... Uh, promised in a will, the person has to die, and then you receive the inheritance. Well, there was an inheritance under the old covenant, and there's an inheritance under the new covenant. And both of those covenants had to be ratified with blood to show that a death has occurred so that you can enjoy the blessings of the inheritance, which is what he says in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled uh, with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which may be one of the things, when you're reading the Old Testament and you're looking through Leviticus and Exodus and Leviticus, you're like, there's blood everywhere. Why so much blood? Well, he wants you to understand. What God told Adam was real. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somebody's going to die in order to appease God's wrath. They were, God, Adam was created to enjoy the blessings of God, to, to be the inheritor of all the earth, but he died. But, but, but he sinned, and therefore he didn't get to enjoy it, which is what he talked about back in chapter 2. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. So what God does under the old covenant is he brings a way for them to receive the blessing in a new land with his presence and his protection and his provision of the law and him, him being with them. They get to enjoy all of that in the promised land of Canaan under the old covenant if they will obey him. Well, in order for them to get all of that, to inherit this will, somebody's got to die. So that's why you have all this shedding of blood of the animals. It's a picture of death has occurred, and now you can enjoy the blessing of this inheritance, which is the same exact thing now for the new covenant. If you want to enjoy the new covenant, a death has to occur in order for you to receive the inheritance. That, of course, is Christ. And by the way, did you catch the parallel there at the end of verse uh, 20? Did you notice what Moses said? This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. What does that sound like? It sounds very similar to the language that the Lord used in instructing how the church is to take the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of this is the blood of the new covenant. The way we get to enjoy the new covenant is that blood was shed. 
because a body was given and broken. He died for us. His blood was shed for us. So as we drink, we drink a reminder that the reason we can enjoy the new covenant promises is because a death has occurred, and it's Christ's. He took the judgment for us so that now we will not be dealt with according to our sins, and we can enjoy him. That's what is the reminder. So they had that under the old covenant, not the Lord's Supper, but those sacrifices of blood, Moses was explaining to them, that's what it's a picture of. Well, verse 23, we're going to see here that Jesus now um, appears in God's presence on our behalf. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year without blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it appears here that Jesus... um, Jesus, in his sacrificing himself, in some sense, cleanses heaven. It was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with rites, but the heavenly things themselves to be uh, with, with better sacrifices than these. In some sense, the shedding of Jesus' blood purifies heaven so that now we can usher in. So it... In order to enjoy the, um, what happened at the tabernacle, it had to be cleansed with blood because there's sinners everywhere. And for them to enjoy that, it had to be covered with blood. Well, now for us to go into um, the substance of which this is a shadow into heaven, in some sense, the, the, the shedding of the blood of Christ paves the way for us to now enter into heaven so that we who have sinned now enter into this place and it's paid in full. How all that works, I am uncertain, but it is, it is marvelous here. Again, verse 27, and we see here that this is, a, this is a sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice of himself was done once. It's not something that he needs to keep doing. This is a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice because it's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's a human in the place of humanity. He who had no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He dies in our place, one death, not many. Verse 27, and just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Well, Jesus came and died once to receive the judgment that we deserve and now rises from the dead and ascends. He intercedes right now until, until he will appear a second time. Now, what do you notice there about his second appearing that's going to be different than his first appearing? Because his first appearing, as we saw back in verse 11, what he did, he came to do what? He came to die. He came to shed his blood as the fulfillment of everything that the shadows of the old covenant sacrifices pointed toward. 
He came the first time to die for sinners. The second time, though, it says that he comes not to deal with sin. What does that mean and what does that not mean? First of all, what does it not mean? Well, what? Yeah, well, so that, yeah, so it, it mean, he's not coming back to die again. Like when Jesus comes the second time, he's not going to be like, okay, y'all missed it the first time. I'm going back to the cross. Let's try it again. That's not what he's done. He's not coming back to deal with sin in that respect. He will come back and deal with sinners and those who rejected his, his sacrifice the first time. He will deal with sin in that sense. But as you said, he's not coming back to die again. He's died once for all. Just as appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. So Christ has died to receive that judgment. And now those who are in him eagerly await his coming. Did you catch that there in 28? To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the posture of the believer. That we know that he who shed his blood for us came the first time to do that, to shed his blood. He has gone to glory. He is coming again. And our heart should be eagerly anticipating his return, longing to see him because he knows when he's coming again, he's going to take us to be with him into the Holy of Holies of heaven where we will be in a new heaven and a new earth and be with God and see him. This is the whole point of the new covenant is to usher us into the presence of God, now by faith, but when Jesus comes back, by sight, we'll be with him. So, so I encourage us to reflect on that verse 28. Are you eagerly waiting for him? And not just because you want to get out of this crazy world, not just because life is hard, I think all of the things that are crazy in this world and the things that are hard, they are intended to prime the, the pump of our heart, to, to, uh, to, yeah, to, to prime our heart to, to, to remember that this world is not our home and that it ought make us hope for other. But, but ask God to help you to eagerly want him. Lord, yes, I want to get out of this place and this body and this madness of the sins that I do and the sins done to me, I want out. But help me to want you more than anything else. Help me to want to be with you who so loved me that you would do all of this. Help me to want you. Because even that perspective helps to purify our hearts and to resist all of the temptations that are gonna call us back away from him. And again, this is something that's not intended to evoke guilt, but rather it's to help purify our prayers. Lord, help me to want you above everything else. So Jesus appears as our purifying sacrifice to present himself as our righteousness, to answer the accusations of the accuser, to enable perseverance through his intercession, and to prepare a place for us of which we eagerly wait to go there with him. That's what chapter 9 is, is all about. That he, he came to reform the old covenant worship. It was just a shadow. These blood of bulls and goats that kept being offered again and again and again. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And now in chapter 10, he's going to show that Jesus fulfilled the Father's will. As we disobeyed the will, well, Jesus o- obeyed it. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law wasn't intended to do that. It's insufficient in that sense. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Of course, if, if the law was intended to cleanse you of sin in your conscience and free you ultimately, you wouldn't have had to need to keep doing all of the sacrifices. But, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So this is the exact opposite of the new covenant, right? Under the old covenant, the intent is to keep your sins in front of you, to remind you, hey, you're, you're a sinner. Hey, you need forgiveness. Hey, you've broken the law. Hey, you need these blood, the blood of bulls and goats to, to be applied for you. That's what it was intended to do, a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the reason is because it's not an equal payment. Humans rebelled against God. So an animal dying in their place is not a, an equal payment. So what we need is we need a human who has no sin to die in our place. Which is what the whole thing is to anticipate for. That there's going to be one who's going to come and do this. This is what Jesus came to do. Verse five, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Meaning, you don't just want burnt offerings from me. You don't just want the ritual sacrifices from me. You gave me a body to obey. He's quoting here David, right? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. This, of course, is, is taken from, from David, who's crying out. He says, God, I know what you don't want from me is just ritual sacrifices. You've given me a body to obey you, which is a great way to think about your relationship with God. That God doesn't just want religious stuff. He wants us. He wants us obeying from the heart. Well, the problem is that even David and all of us haven't done it well, so Christ, he here applies it to Christ, and Jesus says, I've come not to do all these ritual sacrifices, but I've come with a body to, to come and to lay down his life for us. When the above said, you have, this is verse 8, 10, 8, you have desired neither, uh, I'm sorry, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning, God's chief desire the whole time was not just a bunch of animal sacrifices. His chief desire the whole time, all the way from back in the Garden of Eden, is obey me, trust me, follow my word, my will. That's why he gave you a body. Adam didn't do it, Israel didn't do it, but Jesus will do it. He will come in a body as a man and obey the will of the Father. Well, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus, in his offering, sets us apart as his, now cleansed by his offering on our behalf. And what that enables to happen is now that we are set apart in Christ, cleansed by his offering, is that God, watch how he deals with our sins. He, he doesn't just remind, them, remind us of them, but rather he's forgiven them. 
Every priest stands daily at his service here in verse 11, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, what's your words? Sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished is what he cried on the cross. What you don't need is more sacrifices. You don't need more offerings of bulls and goats and all this kind of stuff. Why would you go back to Judaism? Don't go back. Christ is the fulfillment of the all. He said it is finished on the cross. And now what's Jesus doing? Verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Two things I want us to notice. The first is in verse 14. Notice here. By his single offering, himself on the cross, and our union with him in that through faith, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified are believers who have trusted in Christ, and right now we, we are sanctified. Remember, just, justified but we are being sanctified. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. He has positionally perfected us for all time. This comes back to the question we talked about yesterday. Are your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven? Yes. Jesus paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. That means the sins that you have yet to commit, Jesus has already paid for. Which, if you think, well, you could take advantage of that, then you totally understand grace. If you think, you're like, whoa, so that means that I could sin and he's not going to condemn me for it? That's exactly what it means. But if you know the Lord, what you're not going to want to do is, should we continue in sin that grace may increase, Romans 6 says? May it never be. We who are dead to sin, right? We're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if you're truly alive in him, you're not going to want to take advantage of grace. Now, you'll be tempted at times to say, oh, the Lord will forgive me. I'll ask for forgiveness. That's a battle that we'll fight. But the general posture of our heart should be, Jesus did all of this for me. Why would I want to play with the sin that killed my best friend on my behalf? It changes the way you think about sin. It changes the way that you think about life. So the point here, though, is that his single offering was sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And what that ought to do is fuel love for him and fuel perseverance in chasing him because you're a forgiven. You're forgiven. Which is why, verse 28, you remember at the end, we eagerly await him because we want to see him. He, he who died for me, who shed his blood for me, who, who, who treated me not as my sins deserved, but who was so merciful who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was also talking about me on that day. I want to see him. I want to know him. I, want to, I don't want faith anymore. I want to see his face. That's what it ought to create, a longing and a waiting for him. Which then, by the way, did you notice what Jesus is doing? In verse 13, we're eagerly waiting, seeing him. And what's Jesus doing in verse 13? It says he's waiting he, Jesus, is in heaven awaiting the command of the Father, go get your bride. We're on earth awaiting him eagerly. It's the picture of like when a wedding happens in here and the bride's out there and you've got groom up here 
and he's just, his eyes are set on those doors. And he can't wait for them to open, and here comes the bride, and everybody, he starts boo-hoo, and everybody stands up, and like, that's that moment of anticipation, every time that happens, is a picture of what's happening here in Hebrews, where you have the, the bridegroom in glory who has shed his blood for his bride, who is awaiting to come and put his enemies under his feet, the ones who have tortured his bride and have tempted her to go astray and be unfaithful. He is awaiting that, and we are to be here as the bride, eagerly anticipating his arrival, waiting to see him. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will say, I betrothed you as a bride, as a pure bride to a husband, and I'm, I'm concerned that Satan will tempt you to be unfaithful. Sinning now is unfaithfulness against our bridegroom who's waiting. It's like we're out there in the foyer looking at all these idols and messing around when we should be looking and waiting for him. He's waiting to come and to put enemies down so that we can be free and enjoy one another in glory. We should be eagerly awaiting him. And all of this, sometimes deep and difficult under, to understand stuff, is intended to evoke affections for him. To see the, the shedding of his blood on our behalf as glorious and good and, and amazing. This should make us Love him all the more. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Quoting here from Jeremiah 31. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. The reason we don't need offering for sins anymore is because our sins are forgiven. Jesus paid for them on the cross. This is what it means to be free in Christ. This is what he means when in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're forgiven. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because there's been a one-time paid in full sacrifice by Christ. This is why we sing, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. All I have is Christ. Like this is what these songs mean, that we recognize how much he's done on our behalf and we respond in faith. Well, what he's gonna do here now is he is going to show how this produces a confidence in him. In verses 19 and 20, we're gonna see that we have, basically what he's gonna do in 19 down through 25, is he is gonna give us two realities and three responses. Two realities and three responses in regards to how the church should, okay, now what? Well, here, verse 19. The first reality is that we have confidence. We have confidence, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, meaning when his flesh was torn on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn. And so his tearing of his flesh on the cross has provided now us confidence to come into the presence of God without fear knowing that he accepts us because we are um, covered by the blood of Christ. So we have confidence 
because of Christ's shed blood. And the second thing is we have a great high priest, the second reality. We have confidence because Jesus' blood was, uh, or because Jesus' body was torn as the veil was torn, giving access. And verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so the other reality is that we have a great high priest. So not only do we now have confidence to come in because of what Christ has done, but we also have confidence that as we go in that he's there interceding for us. And what should this cause us to do? Well, three things, three responses. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, meaning sincere, without hypocrisy, confessed up, if you will, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 22, we, we draw near. The response to all that God has done here is now we, we draw near in faith, in prayer, knowing that we've been cleansed, knowing that he accepts us. We come with our, our consciences cleansed. And when the accuser comes and says, oh no, you did this, you can say, I did do that. But it was nailed on the cross. Jesus paid for it. And I am cleansed now by the blood of Christ. Father, I've confessed it to you. And like, I, I'm, not, I'm not living as a hypocrite. This is what a clear conscience means. It doesn't mean that you can't remember sins that you've done. It means that you're not owned by them. And the reason is because you've repented of them and you are forgiven of them because of your union with Jesus. So draw near. And then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So not only do we draw near, but we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There's going to be constant things that are going to cause us to be tossed to and fro, but we hold fast. Remember the anchor who is Christ, who is in the Holy of Holies. We're holding fast to him as he holds fast to us. And the reason we hold fast is because he who promised is faithful. That's what he told us in chapter 6. He made a promise and an oath as evidenced by the fact of the Melchizedekian priesthood that God gave the promise with an oath, we are cared for by that high priest who offers up a better sacrifice and a better tabernacle to mediate a new covenant. That's our hope that draws us near to him. It's our confidence. Hold fast your confession of that rather than saying, you know what? That was nice and all, but I'm going to go over here and trust in something else. And then verse 24 and 25, very importantly, you don't do this alone. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the day draws near, that day that we are waiting eagerly for and that Jesus is waiting for, as that day draws nearer, we are not just worried about ourselves, but we are in tune in our local church with other brothers and sisters that we can stir them up. The word uh, stir up there, it's, it's the word that's uh, often used for provoke. So like what a little brother does to his, uh, his sister, try to get him, go, you know, get her, like provoke anger. Well, here it's in a good sense that we try to provoke good deeds. Hey, I noticed that you have this gift. Keep using that. Hey, I noticed that you did this. Praise the Lord. You're growing so much. We want to we do that. And that the local church is to be marked by that sort of provoking encouragement toward love and good deeds. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. 
This, those some are likely the same those who've gone out. They're the ones who no longer are gathering in the covenant community under this word preached that helps them to persevere, but rather who have gone out and are no longer assembling together. He says, we don't do that. So, by the way, if you're looking for your verse that tells you you should go to church, here's your verse. Don't neglect to meet together. This is a command from God because this is the context in which the sorts of relationships that you need to help each other every day, as long as it's called the day, so you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, this is where it's cultivated in a local church. So, the reality is that we have confidence. The other reality is we have a great high priest. Therefore, we should draw near, we should hold fast, and we should stir up. Now, and again, the holding fast is the confession that Christ is our, our Lord and Savior. And then he moves in verse 26 into the fourth warning. The fourth warning. This warning is to do not regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. I mean, after all of that, the last thing you would think that somebody would do would be like, you know, Jesus is not that big a deal. Him shedding his blood, it's not that big a deal. So I'm just going to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject that. I'm just going to go back to, to the world, or in their case, in Judaism. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I think of all the warnings in Hebrews, this is the one that has caused most people some serious vexation in their heart, right? Um, what I'm about to say is not intended to make you think lightly of sin, but it's to clarify what the author is saying. The context is extremely important. There is a particular sin that he's referring to here. It's been what he's been talking about this entire book. If we go on sinning deliberately, in what way? By rejecting Christ. By saying, in the original context, he, you know what, he got what he deserved on the cross. Re-crucify the Son of God, it's the same sort of language. He is not Messiah, he's not the Lord, he's not, he's not my Savior, I'm rejecting him, I don't need him, I've got my own plan. Or I'm gonna, I like a Jesus who doesn't bring hell. Or I like a Jesus who does this, and you, you give Jesus a makeover, and you trust in another Jesus, right? Like many in our day do. We reject the Jesus of the Bible, and we come up with our own Jesus. If you can hear all of this talk about his atoning blood, and his work on your behalf, and the mercy that is given only through this Jesus as he is, if you continue, if you go on sinning deliberately by rejecting that, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other hope anywhere else. 
this Jesus, if you reject him, go on rejecting him, a persistent rejection of him in apostasy, there's no hope for you. There's no hope. There's no sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to the old covenant. You can't, you can't go off to, to some other religion where they have different sacrifices. You can't, there's nothing there. There's nothing there for you. The only thing that's there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Remember this, so if, if you sin against the law, you get two or three witnesses against you, there is, there's death. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? He's talking here about treating the blood of Christ as unholy rather than seeing his spilled blood as something that evokes worship and trust and thank you, it's he got what he deserved, or who cares, or that's made up, or that's fairy tale, or if that works for you, that's fine, but not for me. Whoever does that, whether it be whatever form, how much worse do you think the punishment for that is gonna be if God so dealt with people as he did under the law? Profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now what does that mean, by which he was sanctified? Again, I think this is the same context that we saw in Romans 6. They were sanctified in the sense that they were set apart. They were part of the community. They made a profession of faith. They had an experience with God under the word. They, they, uh, they tasted of the heavenly gifts in that sense. They maybe even got baptized and made some kind of public profession of I'm following Jesus. They were sanctified in that sense that they were set apart as in part of the believing community but then has said, you know what? No, I'm not into that anymore. I don't need Jesus and I don't need your church and your all's way of thing. I'm going out here and I'm doing my own thing. I'm free now, right? That outrages the spirit of grace. This, the Holy Spirit who's calling people to see the preciousness of the blood of Christ shed for sinners like you. And if you're like, eh, I don't need that, whatever. Or if you're like, no, I've got a better way, a different way. And you're going off toward that and apostasite, going out from the sanctified state of being in the, the community of believers, going out from that. There's nothing that awaits except judgment for that. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So to be clear here, he is not speaking about a born-again believer's daily struggle with sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. That is the hope, that we will not sin, that this will help us to not sin. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there is hope for a believer who struggles with daily sins. This is, and what is that? Well, it's Jesus. We run to him and we cry out and we ask for forgiveness and we, we walk in that and we do that in the context of community. That's normal Christian life, to still be battling with our flesh and wrestling against sin. Rather, what he's talking about here is the apostasy, to respond to the gospel after being part of the, the people of God, sanctified in that sense, and for whatever reason, rejecting and saying, I'm going out. I'm doing my own thing. 
That's what he's talking about here. So some in the Hebrews community are leaving and forsaking Christ and his people to go back to, to Judaism. Again, just a few, a bit of the language here, verse 29. He speaks here of spurning the Son of God, trampling underfoot. It's the same language used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 of, of what pigs do with pearls, just trampling on it, treating him as worthless, profaning the, 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 the blood, treating the blood as unclean, not as sanctified, set it, you know, life-giving hope by which he was, again, sanctified. I don't think this has to mean born again, and I think in this context it does not mean born again. I think rather it means set apart as part of the professing community. They sat among us. They sang among us. They said things that we said and then renounced it with their apostasy. They repented of their repentance and went back to their old way or a different way. Outraged or insulted the spirit of grace. This, by the way, is how one blasphemes the spirit today. The unforgivable sin is, is in this category. So in one sense, the, the blasphemy of the spirit is not possible as it was in the days of Jesus because Jesus was on the earth doing works by the Holy Spirit that people were calling works of the devil. That was the blasphemy of the Spirit, unforgivable sin. Well, the way that this shows today is hearing all of this about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is, is making clear to people and then rejecting that and persisting in that rejection, it is blasphemy of the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus, and that is unforgivable. That if you persist in rejecting Jesus, there's no forgiveness for you. And the only thing that awaits is, is judgment. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. It's quoting here from Deuteronomy 32, 35, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, taken from that. Well, this is not from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, but Jonathan's from that. This text is intended to highlight for us that life is moving to a moment, an encounter with the living God. And that if you go covered in the blood of Christ, boasting in him, you can come happily and hopefully with great joy. But everybody's going to wind up there at that great white throne judgment. And if you come there boasting in anything other than Christ and his finished work on your behalf, if you've looked to other things and cast him aside on that day, there is nothing to expect except judgment. This is his warning. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What he's doing there, he's doing the same thing that he did after chapter 6. He's saying, but remember what God has done in you and remember what God is doing in you. So it's like he's warning them and he knows that they're like, oh boy. And he's like, but remember what God has done. And he's pointing out evidences of grace in them to assure them that these are the kinds of things that God sees and is evidence that you know him, so keep pressing on in them. The warning is intended to warn those who are going out 
And it's also intended to warm the hearts of believers to say, oh, I need Jesus then. Could he work in me? Well, he has, he says. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They'll come in, ISIS comes to your house and says, we're taking your house unless you renounce Jesus. Say that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet or else we're taking your house. They said, take the house. We've got a better and lasting hope. That same sort of thing has been happening for, with Christians ever since the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't throw away this boast of Christ, but there's a reward set before you, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For a little while, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are of destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice again, he's ministering to them. He knows that you feel this and you're like, ah. And he's like, but you are not of those kind. He is inspiring faith here. And now he's given you in chapters three and four examples to avoid. And now he's going to show you what it means to be of those who have faith and preserve their souls in chapter 11, where he's going to give you examples of those who have gone before us, before us who have walked by faith and who have inherited the promise. Even though they didn't get everything that they were promised in this life, it is theirs now, and it will be when Christ returns fully and finally. And that's where he's gonna go in chapter 11. I'll pause here. What questions do you have about this section? Chapter nine and 10. I have a question here, right there, and then on this back there. We could probably have time for Three or four, depending on what we've got. Go ahead. Go ahead. Person, is it if it's not the fearful impact of judgment if we're forgiven? Um, what is the real tangible impact? Um, is it the absence of the joy of communing with God? What are the markers of it, if we yeah. were to describe it? So what's the, what's the results of a believer's sin? If it's yeah. not loss of salvation, then what is it? Yeah. Uh, threefold. One, primarily, is it, it grieves God. So God is not need us. He's not fickly emotional or anything like that. He's impassable in, in that sense. That means he's, he's, he's unmoved. He doesn't need us. But at the same time, he chooses to be involved with us in a very real relationship. So when we sin against him, it grieves him. The Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin, Ephesians 4.30 tells us. So it, yeah, it does not break our union with him, but our communion with him is grieved. and It's like a relationship that you have. If you have a relationship with somebody who you love, but things aren't right, you feel it's off. Well, in the same way, there's a the fellowship with God is grieved and needs to be repaired. And it's always on us to be coming and confessing and asking for grace, and he delights to give it. So first and foremost, our fellowship with God um, suffers. 
for us, there's that, that produces a lack of joy. As you mentioned, Jesus said, obey my commandments so your joy will be made full, John 15, 11. Or the peace that, that we experience, a subjective peace. If we're walking in disobedience, I heard somebody's testimony recently who said that they had so much of the world in them that they couldn't enjoy God, but so much God in them that they couldn't enjoy the world. And it's just this middle place of just misery, right? And it steals peace and joy, right? So there's, there's effects of us on us and our sin. And then another and little known one is that the angels and demons see. And this is part of the, the, pur- the purpose of the church, Ephesians 3.11, is to display the glory and the wisdom of God before the angels and demons. And there's a sense in which they see and um, whatever implications are, are there is that God isn't honored before even their eyes. So there's lots of meaningful, and those things, to a non-believer, they'd be like, okay, whatever. But to a believer, you say, oh, well, I want my Lord to be honored. I want him to be pleased, and I want to know his joy. So that motivates us in real relationship, not just this get in line so you can be happy or so that, you know, life won't be bad for you, but it's relationship with him that we have. Good question. Um, and I'm trying to find a better way to say this. Um, there is such thing as a professing believer who, you know, does what, like you said, do whatever we do and make it seem like he is really a believer. But then at the end, it goes down or she goes down the deep end. So is it safe to say that someone can act and be with us and act as though they're changed, but in the end, they do something else. So is it fair, safe for us to say that this person was truly not a believer? Therefore, it doesn't apply to them all the benefits that believers have, you know, because if you don't persevere till the end, then you really were not part of us to begin with. So is it safe to say that what, the way someone lived their life points us to the fact that even though they said the right things, they were not with us? Certainly, yes. Yeah. So your, the fruit of your life is evidence of the root. Meaning, if you are a believer, it will show itself. It, it should show itself. So I can say all day long, hey, I'm the, I'm the starting quarterback for the Washington football team. I'd like to introduce myself to that. But there's no evidence in my life. I might do as well, uh, maybe not, but uh, I, there's no evidence in my life that I am. Like, I never go to the, I never go to the practice facilities. I, don't, I couldn't tell you anything about their playbook. I, don't, so there's, I can say I am, but not be, because there's no evidence in my life. Well, in the same way, there's people who can say, hey, I'm a Christian, but then live very much unlike the world, or very much like the world and unlike Christ, that we would just say, well, this is what hypocrisy is, is to say you're one thing and then to, to do another. So, yeah, somebody can say they're a believer and that they're hoping in Christ um, and, and not be. That, that certainly is the case. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, that, that is certainly the case. And that's part of what the local church is for. It's to help one another, uh, to see those sorts of things. So isolation in that is really dangerous. Now, it's also very possible for a believer um, to... Yeah, to, to be really ensnared in a sin and struggling. That certainly happens. And this is where, again, we should fight against that. And this is part of what these warnings are intended to do, is to, to, to push us toward Christ and, 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 and repentance. So, good question. Yes. Um, so, in Isaiah 6, uh, the cherubims, um, I just had a question. Why do they cover their feet with? Yeah, why, why do they cover their feet? 
be, it's similar to what the Lord told Moses to take off your shoes because you're on holy ground, that they are in the presence of God, and they are, it's symbolic of the fact that they can't look upon him who is holy, and they can't, uh, they can't stand on the ground where this holy one's throne rests. There's a, there's a humility and a posture of, I'm before this holy one. Sort of the picture. Okay. One more question, and then we'll, we'll take our break. Uh, hey, Garrett. Uh, last night you talked about um, what it practically looks like to persevere, like hold fast. Um, could you talk about um, the first one, uh, verse 22, like what does it really mean to draw near to God? Yeah, I, I think it means, so in normal circumstances, it would be we, we awake and we say, Lord, thank you for a new day and help me today to um, yeah, to, to seek your face. So I think it, it is primarily through prayer, and then it's, it's grabbing his word and saying, teach me about you. So it's, it's not just a, I'm, I'm down here checking off boxes, but it's a Lord, I want to read this, I want to know you more. So you're actually seeking to know him. And you can have confidence that you can come to him asking for that because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And then I think, so that's, that's normal kind of communion stuff or, or in dealing with other folks. Anytime you're going to be engaging with another human, you'd be like, Lord, help me to love them. Either this person's difficult to love and you know this, Lord, so help me. Or, Lord, I really thank you for this relationship. Lord, help me to, to enjoy and to be a blessing to them, right? Or when you sin, that you come and you say, Lord, I have sinned. Forgive me. I, I, I come and I thank you that Christ has shed his blood and I pray that you would forgive me and restore the fellowship that we have. Lord, fill me again with your spirit. Um, yeah, thank you that Christ has paid for this already and that my relationship with you is not in jeopardy, but, but I know our fellowship is, is wounded and that is my fault and I am sorry. You have been nothing but faithful. Would you forgive me? And that we know that we have that sort of uh, an invitation to come. It's not like the Lord's like, nah, ain't having it. The Lord's like, yes, come near. That invitation is always available. So in every aspect of the Christian life, it's that invitation.